You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Welcome to the Guidepost. I am happy that after a long absence, my partner in crime, Dr. Willie Goldsmith, is joining us today. Good day, Tony. It has not been a prolonged absence for me, but it it has been a prolonged absence of our joint forces on the Guidepost, I think. So it's good to be back and speaking with my dear colleague once more. Yeah, I kind of feel, I don't know, I feel like... uh, comfortable and ready to get made fun of and all that kind of stuff again the, the I mean, last we're in a pretty podcast. heinous tennessee vols hat there so it's a kind of a not great start for this uh it's i not can't I, for you for the rest of the call but oh, for the, rest of the podcast, God, a, but it is what a, it is pox upon you and every sports team that has ever said they're from boston um big for those day, who can't day tomorrow game one of the alcs just saying Ugh. Um, well, Ugh. it's probably worth noting this is t- episode 21 for us of the Guidepost, and this is going to be our season finale for season one. So thanks to everybody who's been hanging with us and, and sticking with all of our podcasts to date. It's been uh, great to see the positive reception, and we figured today would be as good a day as any to, to put a bow on this first season, given that next week is a big meeting at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. And Tony, do you want to tell folks what we're expecting to see there? Well, you know, folks, you, you never really know what to expect at a striped bass management board hearing at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Uh, what we think might happen is final action on the draft of Amendment 7, which would take it out of draft form into final form head out to public comment in November and December with the final decisions being made in February of 2022. So we wanted everyone, uh, we wanted to give everyone an opportunity to kind of hear from me and Willie uh, about this draft document, understand I'll, I'll put an exclamation point on draft. This is what we know right now. This is what we think is gonna happen. And, you know, it's a good primer to get everyone ready to comment in November and December if the Stripe Bass Management Board approves this thing on the 20th. So, Willie, are you ready to get into this, man? This is fun stuff. Yeah. No, I, I, I think we're ready. I don't think we're going to go piece by piece because we don't want people on here for seven hours. Um, this is a pretty complex document. There is a lot going on, a lot of layers. Um, and I think we're probably just going to speak at a pretty high level, Tony, about each of the four big issues that are on the table um, in this amendment. And then maybe at the end, we'll set aside just a little bit of time to talk about the other issue that the board is going to be voting on 
which is addendum seven to amendment six for those keeping score at home, which would look at allowing voluntary commercial striped bass quota uh, quota transfers in the fishery that we know has uh, has been causing a fair amount of consternation among folks. So maybe we'll get to that at the end. But to start, let's uh, let's start with the big t- big topic at hand, which is Amendment Seven and. I think maybe a good place for us to start, Tony, is on measures to protect the 2015 year class, which is one of the four big issues and certainly one that a lot of folks have been aware of as those 2015 year class fish, which I think are now in the anywhere from, you know, 24 to 27 inches um, have been, you know, pretty, pretty commonly encountered up and down the coast. You know, if regulations stay the way they are, they'll be entering that slot limit largely beginning next year, given that the minimum size is 28. And there are some options that the that the plan development team has developed and put on the uh, put on the table for potential inclusion in this document. So, Tony, I'll kick it over to you if you kind of want to talk through the kinds of options that are on the table and, and where you think we stand on it. Yeah, I think the goal behind protecting the 2015 year class is uh, is pretty simple. You know, when we came out of a moratorium in '95 that was due to protecting the 1988 year class as it matriculated through the system. And the reason why 2015 is so critical is because it's the last really robust year class out there. 2011 was the fourth highest on record. 2015 was the eighth highest on record. Um, As Willie mentioned, a lot of our friends, uh, especially in the Northern mid Atlantic and the Northeast, have seen an abundance of these 2015s and the quickest way in our opinion to recover striped bass is to make sure that those fish get an opportunity to spawn a few times um so there's i believe the options go down to e and nobody wants me to take my shoes off to count that high but um there's a ton of uh there, there's, there's a ton of different options out there in this document to try to address protecting the 2015s. Now, for our listeners, you may remember Addendum 6 to Amendment 6, and that is when they put in the current slot limit. We, uh, along with a lot of other conservation groups, advocated pretty hard to going back to the size limit of one fish at 35 inches. Now I say going back originally it was one fish at 36. We're not about splitting hairs. I certainly don't have enough left on the top. And this of my was, head. and this was back in the, not this was back in the nineties, right? I remember growing up, uh, you know, in, in 95, 96 and it was one fish at 36. Correct. And that, that one fish at 36 really, you know, it, it was, it was the one regulation that we believe really helped that stock to, you know, be what it was and, and, you know, peak around 2006, the, the spawning stock biomass. So I, I hate even bring, my God, I, someone please save me for what I'm about to do. But one of the other options, option E was a recreational only moratorium. And I got to tell you, in the land of bullshit, this sits on the throne because a moratorium is not a moratorium unless nobody's fishing for them. 
just like a slot limit is not a slot limit if you allow certain jurisdictions or sectors to harvest fish over the slot limit. It's not a slot limit anymore. They don't do that for snook. They don't do that for red drum on the Atlantic coast. A slot limit is a slot limit is a slot limit. A moratorium is a moratorium. And the thing that really kind of flies in the face of logic is if the goal of this is to protect the 2015 year class, the bulk of commercial harvest takes place in the Chesapeake Bay. The bulk of that harvest takes place in Maryland specifically. And they're not allowed to harvest fish over 36 inches commercially. So how in the hell is a rec moratorium actually going to accomplish the goal of protecting the 2015 year class? I'm waiting. I don't understand. And I do this stuff. Not the smartest guy in the world said that I think at least twice on every podcast, but how are you protect them? If you're zeroing down on them and a certain sector who harvests more of them in one jurisdiction there anywhere else on the planet is allowed to continue harvest. I don't know. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So that gets us back to one fish at 35 inches. Right. And it's worth noting again, you know, these alternatives are in this draft amendment. Um, you know, we're not sure what's going to be approved to go out for public comment, but these are kind of some of the options on the table. So again, you know, I think our position and we'll see what options end up being out there is that one fish at 35 in terms of, you know, protecting those, those 2015s as they start coming in, you know, coming into what is currently the slot limit, giving those fish a chance to spawn a couple times. It also has, based on some of the projections I've seen, that will lead to like the, lo- the largest uh, stock uh, biomass increase over the next 10 years or so. So, you know, it seems like a, a pretty reasonable approach. I know some folks will say, well, why do, why do we need to protect those fish if there's no clear relationship between the number of adults and the number of the number of juveniles, the recruitment, um, because environment is so important in spawning success. But I think uh, Dr. Mike Armstrong from Mass Division Marine Fisheries said it really well back in May, which is that, you know, leaving enough fish in the system to spawn is one part of it. The other part of it is people like catching striped bass. If there are a lot of fish in the water because we're not killing as many, that's going to provide a lot of fishing opportunities. And so there's a lot of reasons to, to, to be risk averse here to protect those fish and, and, you know, let them do their thing. So we'll be keeping a close eye on this issue and, you know, we'll see, we'll see where the board decides to go on it. So um, anything else you want to mention on this, on this topic, Tony, I think this is kind of, Everything else in this is, you know, it's a little bit more amorphous. This is kind of the one very concrete, um, you know, readily digestible item in this amendment in terms of regulations, you know, for the forthcoming years. Yeah, the only thing, the only other thing I would note, Willie, um, and I am, I am not afraid to mention this at all. Um, you know, it's our job to know things as much in advance as possible. And when Maryland does their young of the year study, which, uh, you know, effectively they, they send biologists out with, uh, you know, bank sains, you know, which is just a, a net has sash weights on the bottom, two sticks, one stick on either end. And they, they kind of wade out into the marsh. Uh, and, and in Maryland, it's incredibly robust. And, and, you know, 
not all stocks have young of the year surveys, right? We, we really rely on this heavily for striped bass. So we know what the future looks like. And, um, Maryland, Maryland Sains, 132 different locations in, in some of the most prolific spawning rivers in the Bay. And from what we're hearing, 2021 is a horrible year. 2020 was a horrible year. 2019, horrible year. There are no cohorts coming up in the system that can conceivably replace the 2015s. So it really puts an exclamation point on doing the right thing by these fish, because if we mess this up, we don't have an ace up our sleeve. That's it. And I think I think that's a good segue into the other issue, which I, I'm almost hesitant to bring it up because of just how many layers of options and possibilities there are. But I think it's something we need to dig into, Tony, and that is management triggers. So do you want to take a crack at explaining, I guess, since we just started talking about recruitment and juvenile abundance indices, you know, you're talking about Maryland's suboptimal, shall we say, recruitment the last few years. You know, what are the kind of options uh, to the management trigger around recruitment that this amendment's looking at? And kind of what are your views on how that might be beneficial for striped bass? Hey, and just to refresh folks' memories. So when we're talking about recruitment and the management trigger, uh, it's management trigger number five. And the basic idea is if any juvenile abundance index, so Tony talked about the one in Maryland, um, if any of those indices that occur up and down the coast show a value lower than 75% of all other values in the data set, which is what is determined to be a recruitment failure uh, for three consecutive years, then the board is supposed to look at the cause of that recruitment failure and then determine what action to do. So that's kind of where we currently are. You know, it's a pretty high bar for, um, for looking at what recruitment failure is, and then also not a whole lot of direction to the board in terms of uh, what they need to do about it. And so there is actually some pretty encouraging stuff in this draft amendment around perhaps um, lowering the bar to having to do some action. So not just thinking about when recruitment is really, really terrible, but also trying to be a little bit more risk averse, where we're not just waiting until we're in a terrible spot before we start thinking about how to address that recruitment and kind of adjust our management to, uh, to accommodate those lower numbers of small fish coming into the system. Now, Willie, to your point, um, the recruitment triggers only been tripped once <laughs> since what? I mean, the triggers were created with amendment six, which was 2003. I think so. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, you look at that and it was, it's, it wasn't even when it was tripped, it wasn't the ocean. It was, it was the kind of the sub stock in Albemarle sound, which doesn't really even contribute much to the coastal stock. So, uh, you know, and that was complete failure, right? I mean, <laughs> stripers in the Albemarle are not doing well. So when you look at this trigger, three consecutive years of something below the 20 25th percentile um 
I mean, it's a pretty low bar. You know, triggers are supposed to be tripped. Pretty and, a pretty high bar figuratively but a very low bar literally if that makes sense yes yes (laughs) thank you for that clarification sir um so you know well i guess the question is willie what what do we do to make that better right in in this in this amendment seven so you know the reference period for all of these triggers is 87 through 2009 if i'm not mistaken i'm i'm kind of going off memory here um for for most of them yeah it's a, it's a range but a lot of them are in that are in that kind of zone there yep okay so there's a couple of different options here obviously one is status quo which if this thing's only been triggered once and and the event that triggered it was basically a, a complete collapse of the stock. Um, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't think status quo is going to cut it for us. What do you think, Willie? I agree, and I think uh, we heard at the last meeting a lot of board members agreed too. You know, it's not just when things are terrible; it's when things are kind of mediocre or lackluster. And is there a way for us to maybe think about? you know, median recruitment values or something like that. And we don't need to get into the, into the specifics of all the options here because, again, none of this is kind of final and it's approval for public comment yet. So there's not really any point in, in, in getting into the weeds too much. But I think something like, you know, if we're having not so great recruitment for a number of years, we should do something is, a, is another way to think about it. And the other encouraging thing here is it's, as we said earlier, the current management requirement response is pretty wishy-washy. And the amendment is probably going to provide some options with some more concrete direction that the board needs to take to address this low recruitment and make sure that we're not beating up on fish when there's not a whole lot of small fish coming into the system. So definitely some room for cautious optimism here. We'll be pushing for, you know, thinking about these these dips in recruitment and how do we adjust for them. Um, But, you know, there are some other parts of this trigger conversation that are um, definitely concerning. I know one, Tony, that you've flagged several times is around kind of the timelines, right? And kind of what that looks like in terms of requiring management action. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So as we've stated, there's five management triggers. The the JAI triggers management, management trigger number five. Um, JAI f- being Juvenile Abundance Index, right, Tony? That's correct, man. We... We gotta, we gotta do it. I know, I know. We gotta do an acronym podcast. I think that would, I think that would help some of our listeners. Um, so, you know, the the other triggers kind of relate to overfishing. Um, you know, probably more immediate, tangible things than you know, hey, these these fish have not been spawning well. Um, so management trigger one basically says you know if the stock is found to be overfished you have to end that within a year and one of the options is three years the stock has to be overfished for three consecutive years to trip the management trigger and and you kind of look at that and you're like, wait a minute, 
we know something is bad, right? We know we're overfishing and you're going to not reduce that F, that fishing mortality level within one year. So the two options are extend it to two or extend it to three years. And you just kind of look at that and you're like, what? And, and then, and then the next option, you know, these are, we, we swore in this podcast, we would not get into the minutia because this is just a draft. We yeah, don't but know, you're on, but, but you're, but you're on the podcast. So we knew we would, you love this stuff. So go nuts. Uh, there's options with sub options, right? There's option. There's options upon sub options. And so basically, Willie, I mean, look, the, here's the nuts and bolts of it, right? They're just, they're trying to extend the timeline out. And, and the, I think one simple me, way the of concept putting it, yeah, of a yeah. trigger is it throws a red flag up and says something going right, change it. And, and we should be able so, to do that. There's a very simple way of thinking about this, I think, and it's the trade-off between management stability, which I know is your favorite term, and being precautionary to the resource, right? And I think certainly our view is if we think something bad might be going on in terms of resource health, let's act and let's act quickly as opposed to kind of waiting and seeing and keeping the status quo measures in place to really, really be sure. I think that's kind of the fundamental the fundamental philosophy that we have in terms of trying to be precautionary and certainly extending some of these timelines or taking action is going against that philosophy would be how I would put it. And I think that's definitely something that's pretty concerning. Um, I would also contend, you know, these triggers in and of themselves are, you know, they're, they're not bad, right? It's not like they're, it, there's, there's directive for action. Has that action always been, you know, completely adhered to is probably something that you would question more as opposed to how good are these triggers themselves. Now there is one exception here and hopefully this will make it into the, into the final alternatives. We are pretty happy to see this in here, which is this option around um, spawning stock biomass and the need to require a rebuilding plan to be established within two years if there's a finding that the stock is overfished. So that's a new thing. I know that's come up a lot in the last couple of years because we don't have a rebuilding plan in place. We do have a requirement to get the stock back to target um, right now by 2029, um, but there's nothing about a rebuilding plan. So we're, um, we're pretty you know, interested in seeing if, if that's gonna stay in the, that's gonna stay in the document. We certainly would like to see um, some kind of rebuilding plan requirement and we'll be keeping a close eye on that too. Anything else to add on triggers, Tony? No, I, you know, Willie, here, here's the bottom line on triggers. This is by far, by far the most complicated aspect of this document. And I guess the long and the short of it is there's Willie corrected me earlier today which is pretty commonplace and one of my uh, favorite pastimes it is really you're good at it um so well, you don't know you don't know the right answer so that's unclear but go on i don't even know what you just said honestly so you're you got a leg up on me so uh there's not a lot of conservation there's one or two things 
that are conservation minded and the triggers and everything else. I mean, look, everything else is stuff that we're going to have to fight against. We're going to be fighting for status quo because I mean, just imagine if we know that striped bass are, are getting pummeled and overfished and we can't do anything until it happens again the next year and the year after that. And I don't really know how that's precautionary conservation minded management. And like, let's be honest here, folks, we're not, we're not talking about scup, which is clearly a food fish. And the current limit is 50 per person. And people go out and catch these things with the intent to eat them by and large. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a very small subsection of the scup fishing community that actually just likes going out and catching them and releasing them. Hey, diamond jig and scup. That's an, that, that's, that's an unsung hero and a trip saver right there. Oh, you know, I get, you know who, you know, who probably sells jigs that specialized it for scup jigging for catch and release is our chairman, Peter Jenkins. If I know Peter, if I know Peter, he probably has scup setups at the saltwater edge, you know, for people who are specializing in giant scup catch and release fishing. But like, look, this is not scup. Since the eighties, you know, this is a catch and release fishery. Yeah. People kill them, but look, 90% 90% of the fish are released independent of what the size or creel limit is. So like if they're being overfished, I think the expectations of the angling community for striped bass fishermen at large is fix this as soon as possible. We don't want to languish in an overfished status for years. And when you look at this document, it's basically giving a green light to languish and allow overfishing year after year, which is just, I mean, it, it, you just kind of look at it and shake your head. So we're not going to go too deep because this is a draft too late. And because, (laughs) well, Hey dude, we could go, let me tell you, I know it. Oh, I know. it. I mean, this, this thing could go on forever and we don't know what's going to be in the final document. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised you know, with, with my history of, of understanding striped bass and listening to these meetings and participating in these meetings and driving public comment for these meetings, it's not outside the realm of possibility that the striped bass management board kicks the can down the road on this. So, you know, we're just telling you what we know today. Um, and, and what we know today is this is a draft. So we're just giving you an overview because, some of this stuff may not be in the final. So, Willie, what's the next thing in our so final would... first season episode, which <laughs> I'm so excited about, that we should tell our so awesome I, listeners? So, I think, you know, you had mentioned that stripers are not scup. Granted, for me, I love catching and releasing scup. That's just me. Um, one of the big items in here, and we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point, is the idea of recreational release mortality, right? The number of fish that are uh, surviving or not, or not surviving after catch and release fishing. Um, and of course, you know, folks, who listen to the podcast regularly. Our last episode, we had Ben Gahagan and Bill Hoffman from the Massachusetts division of Marine fisheries. They're doing some awesome work looking into comparing circle hooks versus J hooks, as well as different types those are, of uh, circle those hooks. Those are two on- really smart dudes. 
even though I am not sure Ben likes me a lot. I'm pretty much, I'm used to that. <laughs> Who wouldn't like you? Well, I don't know, man. Last time he talked, he kind of yelled at me. Like, I, you know, I'm not even really sure what it was he, about. He definitely, he definitely enjoyed poking fun at you when you weren't there to defend yourself last week. So that was good. Well, okay. All right. Well, Ben, I, mean, I, do, I do that. You, I do that too. It's just typically not on the record. So why don't you why don't you hop on a podcast with me, Ben, and we can have some fun? But you know, no, Ben's they're they're both smart guys, and you know, people liking me or disliking me is usually not a metric um, for if they're good people. I mean, it's you know, that would be a pretty bad just, indictment of humanity if that were the case. I, yeah, would it, on. right, Willie? Right? I mean, we're you know, like I said, we don't pick winners. I mean disliking me in some circles is a badge of honor so like you know far be it for me to to stop that but i i look last podcast we covered with two of the better striped bass scientists out there guys who actually care about the fishery who are boots on the ground doing some pretty incredible work for catch and release mortality because let's face it you know look willie does the 9% number that we're going on right now, if any of our viewers actually want to get a hold of that study, I think it's the last page of the study. There's a little italicized thing on the bottom that says, don't use this for management purposes. And we've been using it for management purposes for like a decade or more. So I don't know, you know, I'm just saying, I'm pretty happy that these guys are doing the research. Um, because hopefully it'll help us manage striped bass better for everyone. And yeah, Tony, you know, getting back to the amendment itself, when we're thinking about recreational release mortality and recognizing that this effort is occurring in parallel with all that great work, the guys at DMF are doing. And again, there's a whole slate of options here on the table, looking at post-release mortality, again, recognizing that the numbers of fish getting let go really has been pretty stable over the past 30 or so years or 25 or so years anyways. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing anything about it. It just means that, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a part of the fishery that is not particularly new. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, there's all sorts of options in this amendment, everything from time and area closures, you know, protecting spawning areas to gear restrictions around hook types and use of gaffs to education and outreach, you know, requiring action from different States to, to get into, educating their folks and making sure that people really do understand how best to handle these fish. Cause I think we can all agree that regardless of what regulations are on the table, a lot of this comes down to people doing the right thing when they're on the water and you really can't regulate that. A lot of it is just trying to make sure folks understand how to properly handle these fish. So, you know, there's a lot here. When I was on the advisory call, it was funny because like, you listen, you listen to some of the comments and it was a lot of not in my backyard kind of stuff. So like a surf fisherman said, we got to ban those fly rods and a different kind of fisherman said, we got to get rid of those treble hooks. And then somebody else said, you know, whatever. Wireline. No one can yeah. fish. No one can fish anyway, but the way I like to fish. And, you know, that that's that's absurd. And why is that absurd, Willie? Because right now we don't have any science to back any of that up. This is what we know. We know that if a fish swallows a hook, that's the leading cause of mortality. 
And we know that based on the biological structure of a striped bass, that if it swallows a J-hook, there's a high probability that it's going to hit an important internal organ and it's going to be lethal for the fish. And anything beyond that, if anyone comes up to you and says, you know, I don't use trouble hooks anymore. I mean, that's great. You're doing what you can and it's common sense, but there's no science that says trouble hooks kill more fish, right? So like when they're going through this process, with the release mortality, it's always struck me as a little odd that they're not waiting for this research to come out from mass division marine fisheries because this is going to set the bar moving forward. Would you agree or di- disagree with that, Dr. Goldsmith? Well, I think you can go even further because I do think, you know, I don't think anybody would be arguing that circle hooks are going to increase post-release mortality. So I think, you know, there is some there is some argument that could be made there, but at the same time, you know, he recognized that addendum six, which required circle hooks, you know, started before the study began. Right. So I think certainly, you know, there's a little bit of management preceding science here. Um, and there's always more to always more to learn and more to be done on the research side. And I do think, you know, we all want to maximize the percentage of our fish that are surviving. Um, but in terms of the kinds of measures we can take, I think, you know, some of that does need to wait for, for that concrete evidence. Now, when it comes to, again, common sense around how best to handle fish and, and that sort of thing, I think there, there are definitely measures that can be taken there. Tony, I know you've done a ton of work and are an expert on some of the environmental stressors of striped bass in Chesapeake Bay. And obviously, you know, that's, that's another way to address this. And we're not going to belabor the specific uh, alternatives because there are a lot of them that may or may not make it into the final document, depending on the board meeting next week. But, you know, again, recognizing that this has always been a part of the fishery, uh, you know, we also recognize that there's a need to try to reduce this. And so we'll be trying to find that balance, find that sweet spot between not getting in the way of fishing opportunities or not being, you know, not not being inequitable in terms of who, you know, is going to have to change the way they fish more than anybody else, um, but also try to make a positive impact here. So that's kind of my general view on this issue. It's a much less kind of concrete topic than everything else that we have in this amendment. Um, and it's certainly something that's worth looking at, but it's a, it's a longer term issue and it'll be interesting to see what the board comes up with. And, and lest we forget in 2006, catch and release mortality was twice what it was in more recent years because there were more fish being there were more fish in the system and more fish being released. Nobody gave a goddamn about it then because the stock was fine. And they care about it now because it's a piece of the pie that they can pull from to negate reductions in harvest. If they can do things like limit the season have you know no targeting of striped bass then they can pull from those numbers and give it to people who would prefer to harvest and and mitigate some of those potential losses now this is what i would say you you have i don't know i'm trying to think of a funny southern analogy which i'm becoming known for in my flowery speak you have a better chance of Jesus Christ himself landing on the hood of your car 
explaining to you the path towards enlightenment, then you have regulating a no targeting closure for striped bass. Because every kid on every pier in the Chesapeake that has a blood worm and a J hook and is fishing for white perch is going to hook a 10 inch, 12 inch striped bass. Um, people fishing for catfish in the rivers are going to hook a striped bass. People fishing for bluefish are going to hook a striped bass. So how do you manage non-targeting? And the law enforcement has made many comments that it's not enforceable. But, and, and look, if this was going towards conservation, if they said we saved a million striped bass with non-targeting, and it's going towards conservation, that would raise my eyebrows, give me pause, and make me think. But that's not what's happening. They're saying, hey, we took a million fish away from those guys. We're going to give them to these guys. That's not conservation. It's not anything. It's nothing but a shell game to mitigate losses for people who say, I'll go out of business if I can't kill striped bass which is odd because the bulk of our membership bases their business on letting striped bass go. So I don't know what's broken in the business model, but you can certainly prosper by letting them go. The proof's in the pudding. 90% of the fish are let go. So if this was a truly a conservation thing, it wouldn't be a shell game where you're shifting it over to another group so that's my two cents on catch and release we have to do the best that we can we have to treat the resource with respect no matter what we're fishing for i don't care if you catch an oyster toad throw the thing back you know there's no reason to smash its head on a rock you know when we fish streams i still see people throwing creek chubs on the side of the river because they're a quote-unquote trash fish and they're a native fish that's an architect of the river. They're, they're, they're spawning habitats, create habitat for other creatures in the river. And it's completely asinine to kill one, just to kill it. You have to treat the resource with respect. And if we plan to release a striped bass, you got to do everything you can. Hopefully another fisherman can catch it if it survives. So use, use some common sense, treat the resource with respect. I guess that's all we're asking on that. So with that, Tony, we've covered three of the four. I guess it's probably time to move on to what I know is your favorite topic, which is conservation equivalency. And unlike everything else we've discussed, I think this is really as <laughs> I think maybe what you would say is given all of the challenges with conservation equivalency, anything we can do here would represent an improvement. And I think there are some potential ways to be a little bit more risk averse and to put some more guardrails uh, you know, into this, into this conservation equivalency process. So, uh, maybe I'll kick it over to you and, and get your thoughts. And then we can, you know, dig into some of the ideas that are on the table here. It's pretty obvious. We've beaten this to death. Some States exploit the use of conservation equivalency and the data collection system for recreational fishermen, MRIP is not good going down to granular levels. 
So if you want to know how many striped bass were caught in a season coastwide, it's pretty darn good. Best thing we got. But if you want to know what was caught in two weeks in April for one state, it's not very good. And they're pretty honest about it because when you look at the MRIP numbers, there's a column all the way on the right that says PSE, which stands for percent standard error. And if that data is over a certain percentage, it should be thrown out. You know, if it is a PSE of 50, 60, 70%, it's not real useful for management. And what's happened now with, with MRIP coming online in the last few years is we have some, we have some states jurisdictions using PSEs with 50, 60, 70% to shut real narrow went two weeks here. We're going to shut that down. We're going to shut a month down here. And again, these fish aren't going to conservation. They're just monkeying around with them. And the effort's going to increase and the harvest is going to increase when it is open. So there's no conservation benefit from conservation equivalency. And you'll hear this, you know, oh, well, we're different and our guys like to do this and our guy, you know, but our needs are this and we're going to use con. And we've heard it forever and it's tiresome. So through the plan development team, that whole process is multiple meetings. There's no way that we can penalize a state after they overfish because it's hard for us to measure the extent of overfishing. So let's say and, and, that, and it's and it's also you know take this argument um as you will but it's hard to say to what extent that overfishing was due just to that conservation equivalency or due to a whole bunch of other factors that, that could have contributed to that too so you know changes in fishing effort and all that good stuff sure so how, how do you how do you put some guardrails on it so this isn't abused right I think some of the options on the table is, I guess, what we're calling is to, to front load it. So if you choose to use conservation equivalency, maybe you have to tack on another 20% to your possibility of success. So what does that mean? You know, when they come up with a fisheries management plan, it has to have a 50% possibility of attaining the conservation goals so if they come out and say we need to reduce striped bass harvest by 18 percent whatever measures are approved have to have a 15 50 50 percent chance of that being successful and that's based on an old court case for summer flounder in new york many moons ago you can look it up the judge called fisheries management bizarro world because the the fisheries management plan for for fluke had like an 18 percent chance of being successful and they got sued for it and had to have a 50 percent chance so there's a little history on why it has to be 50 percent. okay so what if somebody chooses conservation equivalency and now they have to have a 70 percent chance of success is conservation equivalency if they're really abusing it is that attractive for that jurisdiction anymore? Certainly less attractive. Certainly, certainly has a higher chance of 
accomplishing those conservation goals. And Willie, what do you what do you think about this? Because you're a, you're a uh, you're a numbers guy. You went to school long enough. Good lord, <laughs> your poor parents. It's true. Having to pay for all that, my I'm, God. I'm, I'm like I'm like Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, you know. Poor years, poor Mama Goldsmith, man. The drink, right? Jesus, exactly. Mary and um, Joseph, that poor woman. <laughs> if you if you're listening, ma'am, you know how much I appreciate your pain. Um, <laughs> well, now so. you have to bear the brunt of it, right? So exactly, it is what it is. Well, Mama yeah, Goldsmith, so I, help me. It's Mama Gottfried. I would have to say. I have to say that. Otherwise, she would she would have to say something to me. So there it is. You're welcome. Mom. I didn't want her. I didn't want her to use her real last name so people didn't know. <laughs> since I was, since, since, for God's sakes, don't say her first name now, oh Willie. You God. fool. It's also Doctor Gottfried. All right, we're done here. Um, oh Lord, help! Oh, he had to throw that in, everyone. <laughs> oh, the snootiness comes out. All right, let's continue. So you were talking about, you know, projections, right? Projections around conservation equivalency, and I think this uncertainty buffer idea is gaining some traction. So. You know, let's say everybody needs to take a 20% reduction. Maybe you need to take a 22 or 24% reduction if you're going to implement CE. Just again, to, to account for that uncertainty and, and how the implementation is going to go. Uh, you know, another option on the table is maybe you restrict when conservation equivalency can be used. So if the stock is overfished, you know, maybe you restrict the use of conservation equivalency there as well. Uh, another option that's come up is you mentioned the MRIP precision standards, uh, you know, those big percent standard errors. Maybe you have a, you know, a, a minimum level of precision. So if the, um, if, the MRIP, if the MRIP percent standard errors are above a certain percentage, you can't use conservation equivalency. And states could increase their own sampling capacity to reduce that number, to reduce, uh, to increase that precision. But these are just some of the, uh, some of the ideas that are being kicked around to try to bring conservation equivalency back to its intended purpose of you know having conservation uh and being uh, an effective tool for management instead of a way to sidestep management so uh we'll be interested here i think there's really some good potential here uh i'll be excited to see what the board comes up with in terms of deciding and whether they're going to include all these measures there but uh i'm pretty encouraged by this section honestly tony i think there's a lot of potential for benefit here are, are we gonna have to are we going to have to change our trademark conservation equivalency sucks if this goes through in a positive way? I think that's a that's a you and John conversation. I know you guys love the tone, love the uh, the ring that that uh, that that term has for each of you. So you'll have to uh, have a little summit meeting on that, I guess. I, w- I will have you, to say I I did take a little bit of enjoyment in how that caught on um, and to, to take such an amorphous management pile of mumbo jumbo. It's so hard to explain and distill it down into two words to aggravate the public and get them, get them involved. People do call you a lot of things, but if they call you a rabble rouser, they are most certainly not lying. That is for sure. Something I have observed in my short tenure as your co-conspirator here. Tony. Well, Willie, what do, what do we always say? What's, so like the differences between us never, never are more salient until there is chaos because i love chaos and i crawl into a hole it makes it makes me feel alive i, I it's that's like why you love striped bass management i feed i feed on chaos so if i can create chaos an agent of chaos and 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 really just make people 
grab a handful of the bad folks who want to do bad things to my beloved striped bass and make them just grab a handful of Tums and start chewing in the morning. I feed off of that. That makes so, me live longer. I'm so happy for you. I'm glad. To, I'm glad <laughs> that you have such a such a constructive animating force. Uh, it, so, it is okay. Thank you All for right. putting that in beautiful prose. Yeah, well, I, I do. I may, I, do I may have I that chiseled on my tombstone. Yeah, great. All right. You so know what? You should... know what I'm gonna have on the. You know. Do you know what I'm gonna have on my tombstone, Willie? No, I don't. I told Tony. you. What this. are you gonna have on your tombstone? I uh, yeah. Sometimes old, I don't listen to what you say. Go an on. old friend of mine, many years ago, we were actually talking about striped bass management, probably back in like 2009. And it was it was Lefty Cray, and he had this crazy Baltimore accent. It was one in a million voice. And I unloaded on him for like 10 minutes about all the insanity with striped bass. And he was sitting in his chair in his office and he cocked back and he looked at me and he goes, Pfft. he always laughed. He always snorted and he laughed like before he said something funny. He's like, Tony, you got more balls in a bowling alley. And I said, lefty, can I please put that on my tombstone? And he goes, Pfft. sure. What do I care? So, I'm going to put your thing right below Tony. He had more balls than a bowling alley. Um, it was a very meaningful I'm, moment. In I'm, my life. I'm so happy for you. I'm not as happy for like the parents with their children walking by asking what that expression means. So, you know, but that's, that's the fun that, of that'll it. Be, right? That'll be part of your legacy. That's, right, the, so, that's the fun of it. So as usual, we promise to be brief. We're now about 50 minutes into talking through amendment seven. Uh, folks will be relieved and happy to hear that we've gone through the four issues uh, this is going to be the bulk of the conversation, I think, during next week's board meeting on the 20th. Uh, but I would be remiss uh, if I didn't mention that the other item on the table is going to be addendum seven to the current management plan. And this is around that uh, voluntary commercial quota transfers issue. Uh, some of you might have read Tony's blog that was published probably about a month ago now, Tony, if not a little bit longer, uh, kind of expressing his concerns with this provision. And Tony, don't know if you want to kind of just give a quick overview here before we wrap as to kind of what you're hoping to see come out of this conversation next week. So everyone check out the blog. It's madness, right? Delaware wants commercial striped bass quota. Last year, there was like 2.2 million pounds left on the table of uncaught quota. So imagine the absolute shit show that that would create. One state wants more black sea bass. Another state wants, I don't know, whatever. Pick a fish. One state wants more menhaden. A lot of people want menhaden these days. Well, I got 100,000 pounds of unused striped bass quota. Less trade. And what does that what does that translate to at the striped bass management board? What decisions? What little what little hallway handshakes come out and and sell striped bass down the river so somebody can get a couple hundred thousand pounds more of black sea bass or a million pounds more of menhaden? And and this is an allocation issue, right? And it's I'll, largely it's largely an allocation issue for Delaware, right? It's it well, it's, a, one... it's an allocate. It's a it's a single sector allocation issue. It's not a it's not an allocation issue with Rex. 
Right. There's, you know, North Carolina hasn't used a pound of their striped bass quota. In but uh, but but there years. aren't there aren't multiple states clamoring for more quota. It's one state, Delaware. Oh yeah. That you know not un, not unjustifiably wants an update in the quota allocation because the numbers are old, right? And the idea was let's take this out of Amendment Seven because this is going to kind of slow the whole process down. And I think your point that you're trying that you're saying is that this is kind of opening up a whole Pandora's box where there was a much, you know, there was kind of the opportunity for a more surgical solution to this very finite problem. Uh, but instead, you're potentially causing a new problem in terms of increasing the ability to kill more striped bass at a time when the stock is at a 25 year low. Oh, hey, look, let's let's be honest here, Willie. I mean, Chris Bat Savage from North Carolina is, is a pretty straight shooter. He's a really intelligent guy, and and the thought that these two states can't sit down, you know, maybe North Carolina hopes that striped bass recover one day, and they're they can get some of their quota, you know, back from Delaware. Maybe that's why they don't want to give up their quota, and that's totally understandable. Um, they're not catching any anytime soon. And they have, you know, Delaware's quote is minuscule, minuscule right now. And and it would be very easy thing for North Carolina to say, you know, for five years, you can use 100,000 pounds of our quota. We're not giving you it all. But, and, and that would have satisfied Delaware, right? Would have satisfied them. But instead, you know, what comes out? First of all, in it, it was it should have taken place after Amendment Seven was over with, so people could actually understand it and comment on it. But where they do it in parallel, you know, they they and and frankly, it has to get done before Amendment Seven passes, because Amendment Six won't exist anymore. Right? This is this is Addendum Seven to Amendment Six to deal with this stuff. I know this is terribly confusing for people, but this should have and and for us <laughs> yeah i mean this is this is nuts look folks this document amendment seven is like oh my gosh it's like 144 pages long it's madness we're still going through it all right and 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 you know there's landmines everywhere and the expectations for a normal fisherman who cares about striped bass to be able to meaningful meaningfully comment on this are off the charts crazy and let's put it this way, you know, striped bass are in trouble. And rather than address the trouble, you know, well, we're going to push for Amendment 7. We're going to make changes to management. We're going to change the reference points. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We were able to shoot a lot of that junk down. And now we're left with four items and the documents still all, you know, somewhere around 150 pages long. And madness with color-coded charts and crazy terms that no one can be expected to understand. So we're going to do our best. We're going to wrap up our last show of the year and we're going to, we're going to do our damnedest to educate all of y'all on the issues. We love these fish as much as you do. We're going to make sure it's fair. We're not going to take from anyone else and give to ourselves. And we're going to be the guides association. And with that, I think we will wrap up season one and we'll be back next week with our esteemed president, fresh off the tuna grounds and fresh off the commission meeting, Captain John McMurray, 
who is going to join us to debrief what went, what went on at the Stripe Bass board meeting. So we'll, uh, we'll catch up with everyone there. Thank you, Mama Godfried, for bringing Willie into our lives. He's Mom, such a, I'm, he's I'm, such a I'm benefit. So, oh, Mom, I'm so sorry when you hear this podcast.